When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Wealth Ability for CPAs show. Better clients, better practice, better life. Here's Tom Wheelwright. For over 100 years, the CPA profession, legal profession, and others have billed on an hourly basis. And yet, when I talk to entrepreneurs, all they want to know is what are the results. And they don't want to focus on an hourly basis. They want to know what results are you going to give me. And now we start are starting to have a movement towards value pricing and um, beyond that, even a subscription pricing model. And Ron Baker, who is uh, really the founding father of value pricing, most of you know who he is, is with us today. And it's really a pleasure, uh, Ron, to have you on the show, on the WealthAbility Show for CPAs. And uh, for those, if there's anybody out there who doesn't know who you are, please give us a little bit of your background. Well, thanks, Tom. Thrilled to be here. Um, I'm a recovering CPA. I started my life in a big eight firm. So that carbon dates me right away, right? Big eight, big six, big five, big four. So I uh, joined, uh, joined Pete Mark in 1984, worked for there for two and a half years, then went out and started my own firm. And when I launched my own firm, I realized very, very rapidly that the billable hour was a lousy customer experience. And I was studying companies like Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom and Disney and Lexus, American Express. Now at the time, these companies had stellar customer uh, success, you know, customer experience scores. Um, and I wanted to emulate that. I wanted to be a, a, a great customer service firm. And I told my partner, I said, the billable hour is terrible. We got to get, we got to do something else. There was nobody on the circuit talking about it. There was no books about it, no consultants about it. This was 1987. And we started doing fixed pricing and value pricing. I made every mistake under the sun, but we stuck with it for one reason. The customers loved it. And of course, once we got better at it, because it is like golf or tennis, it's a skill. It's, a, it's an art, but it's also a skill. The more you do it, the better you get. Once we didn't charge by time, well, then there's no point in measuring time. You start to measure other things that are more important to the customer. And so we got rid of timesheets, which of course the team members loved. I got so excited by this. I started teaching it to my colleagues, Cal California CPA Society in 1994. And I wrote a book in 98. That book went through six editions. It sold 40,000 copies for a $150 book. That wasn't too bad. And uh, it kind of put me on the map worldwide. So in 2000, I sold my half of the firm to my partner who still runs it. 
And I've been consulting and writing and speaking about this ever since. Awesome. And and you are you're a you are a focused man. You are so focused on this. And and I love that. Um, I know that a lot of CPAs love this idea, but then they go and they're worried about implementing it. So um I first of all, I love that you focused on the customers, on the clients, because uh my firm, we've done this um for the last several years. We actually have gone to a subscription model and the customers, the clients love it. In fact, uh, we had several people say, what took you so long? So (laughs) let's talk about this idea, first of all, if we can, Ron, about focusing on the results as opposed to outputs instead of inputs. And so from a a client standpoint and from a, a, a staff standpoint, how do you do that? How do you get focused on the results? on the results, you know, it's really, when you think about it, we've gone from charging for inputs, like you said, by the hour, that's charging for our inputs, our efforts, our time, our costs, our overhead, our profit desires, right? It's all cost plus pricing. And then we went to value pricing. And if you look at the way value pricing has been implemented by many firms, you know, they offer three options, blah, blah, blah. It's still based on outputs, which is the services that you deliver. However, what the customer really wants in the highest point of value are outcomes. So I have a landscaper, Tom, and uh, I found him by getting three bids. And the first guy came out and he walked around my yard and he's got his clipboard. And he said, we're 40 bucks an hour. We'll come out every week. Well, okay. He's pricing based on inputs. Second guy pulls up in his truck, same thing, clipboard, walking around the yard. Ron, we'll come out every week. And we'll take care of everything. You know, mow the lawn, do the edging, trim the trees, bushes, blah, blah, blah. $100 a month. Okay, he's charging me based on outputs. I'm sure if I had a sprinkler go bad or something, I'd get a change order from him and he'd charge extra for that. The third guy comes out, shakes my hand, says, hey, Ron, tell me about yourself. What do you do? I travel a lot. I speak a lot. I take it you don't like yard work. No, I hate yard work. I'm not Martha Stewart. I don't want to look at my yard. I don't want to have to think about it. If it hits my radar, you're in trouble. That's why I fired 12 landscapers before you. And he said, I appreciate that. He gave me three options. He said, we'll give you basic maintenance. He said, the middle plan will be, we'll take your yard up to neighborhood standards. So you stop getting, you know, HOA letters. Or I know you want to sell in a couple of years. How did he know that? He asked me, (laughs) he said, we'll give you best curbside appeal. So I'm paying him $300 a month. Gradually over time, he's giving me best curbside appeal. He's charging for the outcome. I'm paying him three times more than my prior landscaper and I'm a happier customer. That's what we're talking about. Every firm out there has best curbside appeal. Your customers don't care about the scope of work. They don't care about the services. They care about transforming, going from where they are to some desired future state. And we can do that, Tom, from room to tomb. We can do transformations. We can do serial transformations over and over, get their kids into college, plan their retirement, help them sell their business for more money, plan their legacy for after they're gone. Uh, These things are personal transformations. And when you guide transformations, the customer's the product. So so you, you you bring up a good point in that um your landscaper asked you. You and so one of the things I've been saying is that really our number one job as advisors is to ask better questions. And so we what I'm hearing you say is we need to ask the client what is the outcome that they want. And then 
look at, okay, what part of the outcome that they want can we deliver and how do we deliver that? Right. We've got to start with the scope of value rather than the scope of work. And we jump into the scope of work because that's where we're safe and comfortable. And, right. and we know what, you know, we got to do these following things, get the IRS off your back or whatever it may be. But it's really not about the scope of work. It's about the scope of value because it's the scope of value that determines the scope of work. So without knowing if we can even help the customer, you know, doctors have a great saying, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. And I feel the same way without a really in-depth conversation of what it is the customer is trying to achieve. We're not doing our job as professionals. To be a professional is to be accountable for creating a result, not performing a series of tasks. And the billable hour and even to some extent value pricing have, have turned everything into a series of tasks right. or deliverables. And we need to move away from that. And that's why I think the subscription model is so powerful. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. If Okay, we're focused on the outcome. And you mentioned the, you know, the your landscaper gave you three options. And I've heard you, I've actually read um, you saying, give, you know, give them three options. That's standard, actually. That's marketing 101, right? Give them three options. Uh, make sure the middle option is the one that they are, that you're, that is what everybody wants. And uh, some people choose the highest option. Some people choose the lowest option. Most people will head towards the middle and that's, that's a standard human psychology. Um, but if you're, if you're doing that, you're going, okay, I'm going to price this. First of all, um, how do we know how to price it? And second of all, um, how do we judge then the success or efficiency or effectiveness of the staff when we're not tracking their inputs? Right. These are questions that come up all the time. First off, when you go to subscription, you're going to a different business model. So it's not just a different pricing change. The subscription model blows up a lot of old tenants of value pricing, one of which is three options. I do not believe you need three options in a subscription model. I've seen many successful subscription companies with two options, such as Spotify. I've seen very successful subscription businesses with just one option. So I'm, not, I'm no longer sure about three options in the subscription model. What the, what the subscription model does is it puts the relationship at the center of the firm. It's all about the relationship. The services become a means to an end. That's just something we do to help the customer go from where they are to where they want to be. So my North Star for this, Tom, is the concierge and the direct primary care doctors. These doctors are growing like weeds. Amazon just made a $3.4 billion play, bought one medical, which you can subscribe to, by the way, if you're a prime member for 144 bucks a year, that's 12 bucks a month. You get your own DPC and you can go see them. You can do telemedicine. You can email them, text them. These doctors, there's over 2000 of them around the United States and all 50 states are growing like weeds, but here's the difference. They limit themselves to the number of patients they can handle. So the average GP in, in the United States has 2,400 patients. These docs have 600. That's 75% fewer customers. And that way they can spend one hour and even more with you rather than just five minutes that you usually get. And they always have capacity to handle emergencies. They'll come to your house, your office, whatever. There are no waiting rooms in their offices. And that's my North Star. Why can't we just take care of our customers? Because if we spin back and ask people, why did you become a CPA? Number one answer to help people. You can't help your clients if you have a thousand of them. I'm sorry, you're kidding yourselves. 
relationships don't scale. There's a Dunbar number that we can handle. Now, I'm not saying businesses built on relationships can't scale. My argument's different. The number of relationships any one professional can have, and, and I mean have a deep impact on their customers engaging in these serial transformations, is maybe 75, maybe 100 tops. If you have more than that, you're not really doing your customers everything that you could do yeah, for them. I, I, I would say actually 75 to 100 is pushing it. Um, it is. Yet we actually, in our firm, uh, we handle less than 50 um, relationships. In, so the concierge doctors. Now, <laughs> what, what are things, families. Now, now, let's talk about this subscription um, and the subscription model. Because with concierge doctors, we've actually seen um, two different types of concierge doctors. One is you can call them anytime you want. That's the Amazon. That's the one you were just talking about. You can call them, but they're never going to call you. Okay. When what I find with clients is they really would like somebody to be in charge and they don't really want to be the one to have to call you. So my question is, are we, uh, is it a relationship um, or is it a transaction? If, are we based on transactions or relationships? Because if we're based on transactions. That means we're waiting for them to call us. And how do you feel about the waiting to call us versus us calling them? Yeah, I'm. Uh, it, it's the relationship that matters. So transactional needs to go. That This is why I think the regular GPs in, in the States have such a problem. They're in a fee-for-service model. Right. Well, think about it. So are we. We, we trade dollars for services. Oh, the more scope of work, we, we like bricklayers. The more bricks we lay, the more services we pile up, the more value we create. That's nonsense. The landscaper who's given me best curbside appeal, I don't know what bricks he's out there laying. I don't care what kind of trees and flowers he plants. Just give me the best curbside appeal. So I'm not even paying attention to the scope of work. I'm only focused on the outcome. And that's what the relationship does. So we need to be much more proactive, I think, with our customers and call them. This is one of the things I think I've learned from the doctors is the concierge doctors, DPC doctors, they tell the, they have to admonish their patients and re-educate them. We don't want to just see you when you're sick. We want to see you when you're healthy because we're here to keep you healthy, not just to get you better when you're sick. Yeah. So one of the things we've done is we've gone to, at a minimum, we're going to call our clients and set up appointments once a quarter because they we need to go through their estimated payments. We need to go through where they are during the year. That's a minimum. We have uh, another, another group of clients that we talk to them once a month. And we always schedule that next call at the end of the, of the call. We schedule the next call. So when you're still Again, how do you get to the pricing then? Because I think one of the challenges that a lot of CPAs are concerned about is, okay, how do I know what the market is? You know, how do I test the market for the pricing and know what the value is of that concierge service, right? When you have some people, I mean, here you have some doctors charging $2,500 a month or $5,000 a month for their concierge services. And you've got Teladocs charging $149 a year, right? I mean, that's a, that's a very wide range of pricing. So how do you get to that pricing um, when you, uh, frankly, you don't have, you're not tracking your inputs in the first place? Right. See, this is a very interesting question because I don't think it's a pricing question. It's a strategy question. The first thing your firm has to determine is, are you Morton's or are you McDonald's or are you a vegan restaurant? 
Because if you look at airlines, for instance, Southwest versus say United or another legacy carrier, they have very different strategies and that's going to lead to very different pricing. Southwest doesn't care what United charges. They care about what it costs you to drive or take the bus. That's the, so it's a completely different pricing strategy. So strategy and positioning drive pricing. It's not the other way around. Pricing is actually the last thing in the food chain. If you want to be a concierge doctor like MD squared, you're going to charge your patients 40 grand a year because you're a premium, you're boutique. If you right. want to be telehealth, you're only going to get 150 a year, but it's a different strategy. Both are very viable, but they're just different strategies. And that's what firms have to grapple with first is what's your strategy. Too many firms out there try and be all things to all people. And your strategy is defined by the customers you don't have and the services you don't provide. So too many CPAs, if they were veterinarians, they would also say, hey, we're also taxidermists. So either way you get your cat back. That doesn't work, right? I mean, strategy is all about trade-offs. No, for sure. And, and in fact, you, you actually bring, um, bring us back to something that I've been talking about for several years now, and that is really knowing who you are, what your brand is. And then once you know who you are and what your brand is, then you can talk about what am I going to deliver. And then you can talk about who are my clients. Right. And then you can talk about your pricing and your exactly, value. Yeah. Exactly. But you have to know, you, you have to know who you are. And, um, and just one thing on that, Tom, a brand can only stand for one thing. Yes. You can't sell Rolls Royces and Chevys out of the same dealership. It would confuse right. the market. It would confuse, confuse your people. You got to stand for one thing. And too many firms out there try and be all things to all people. And that's a prescription for being very unsuccessful. No, 100% agree with that, Ron. Um, so one of the challenges, of course, that everybody's going to have is their clients have been used to pay by the hour, right? And so the market is out there paid by the hour. In fact, I think we've had a race to the bottom for many, many years in our profession as to uh, you know pricing as cheap as we can, you know, competing on price, which is a horrible place to be, frankly. Unless you're um, Walmart. If if that's your brand, that's right. fine, and right. that's Walmart's brand. But if but he, that's not even McDonald's brand. Brand uh, even McDonald's doesn't race to the bottom. They they go here's our pricing, and this is what it is. Right? We're gonna and they're very strategic in how they do that. Um, how do you? So what's the message that you're telling to to your clients who are on a uh, hourly fee or prospective clients on hourly fee. And they're used to hourly fees either with you or with somebody else. And now all of a sudden you're saying, well, this is, you know, this is the price and this is what you get. Um, how do you, how do you shift their mindset? How do you do that pivot? Yeah. There's actually three models to pivot and I'll just give you the most successful one. We can talk about the other two if you want, but the most successful way to move from value price or from hourly to subscription or value pricing to subscription is to create a new firm. And because this model is so different, it requires different accounting, different KPIs. It requires a plus offering what Walt Disney referred to as plusing, meaning told constantly enhancing innovation is baked into subscription. That's another thing people don't seem to understand about the subscription model you can't go to the market with a common offering. You have to go to the market with an uncommon offering, a plus offering. And if you do that, then you can command uncommon pricing. Go to the market with a common offering, you're going to command common pricing. So the best way I think to pivot and the most successful that we've seen empirically is creating a new firm. And 
eventually the old firm, the new firm would cannibalize the old firm. Either you'd move those legacy customers over or you'd let them go right. because if they're not, if they don't want to pay for this, now I'm talking about a price point, Tom, two to four to five times more right. than what you're charging now. Because I think if we give our customers convenience, simplicity, peace of mind, that's a plus offering in and of itself right there. It's a good start that can get us higher pricing power. This is why we're paying these concierge doctors and DPC doctors two, 300 bucks a month because we can get to them anytime we need. And people will pay to save time. I mean, I, I subscribe to my HVAC people because you know if a heat wave, cold wave comes, they guarantee a 24 hour right. response. I'll pay for that. I'll pay dearly for that because I don't want my time wasted. And I think that's the biggest sin in business today is we waste the customer's time. Classic example is sending out a 200 page organizer. <laughs> if you're sending out a 200 page organizer. That's customer abuse because yeah. you should know, just like you said about contacting customers monthly, you should know everything. You should be able to fill that, that organizer out for all your customers. And if you can't, you don't know enough about them. So you, you talk about uncommon offerings. So can you just give us uh, your thoughts on what you mean by that? And in an example. Yeah. First off, using the language, I think so much of this transformation is linguistics. Using the language, not saying customer, they're members. Membership has privileges. Um, and so using the language of transformation, just like my landscaper did, he didn't talk to me about edging and mowing. He talked to me about best curbside appeal. So the language is completely different, just like Walt Disney did with Disneyland. It's not an amusement park. It's a theme park. They're not rides. They're attractions. They're not staff. They're cast members. We're, we're on stage. We're backstage. All those, all those linguistic changes are really important. And if we were to message that way, it would convey higher prices, which would command a higher price. So much of pricing is psychology. It's in the minds of the customers because value is completely subjective. It's in the minds of the customer and they can change their mind tomorrow, literally overnight and decimate entire industries just by changing their mind about, you know, if they don't value things anymore. And so if we go to the market with an uncommon offering, we're always going to be in the lead. And if we constantly plus that offering, it, it, an easy example is take a look at what the doctors are doing. They're adding 23andMe analysis. They're adding uh, blood work. So you can come in and get your blood work and the doc goes over the results with you in, the, in that appointment. They're adding imaging and other diagnostic services. They might bring in a chiropractor or a masseuse or a dietitian. They're constantly plusing the offering just like Amazon does. And it's not at all related to the price. When Amazon drops or Netflix drops a new series that we're all binging, the, the price doesn't go up. Now, it's they're going to raise the price eventually every year or so like Amazon does. But when they do that, they'll be able to point to all the things they added that are value added rather than talking about their costs. Good companies don't justify price increases based on cost and inflation. They do it based on value like Apple. Yeah, so, so let me... Uh... Let's talk about something that I know accountants fear, which is uh, all of a sudden they're going to get a huge project. So you've gone to subscription pricing, all of a sudden they get a huge project and now that's, but they're on a subscription pricing. So how did, how do you deal with that amount of large extra, for example, an IRS audit would be a perfect example of that where you're not expecting an IRS audit. 
IRS audits can run ten dollars to $30,000 on an hourly basis. So how do you then build that into your um, pricing? See, this is why the subscription model can get you a two to four to six times uh, multiple on your pricing because you're baking those risks into the portfolio. Exactly. So you're thinking like an actuary here. Not everybody's going to get audited, but the one or two that do are going to be more than covered for the price increase that you're spreading across the portfolio. And when people say to me, well, these but these big projects come up and they're black holes and we don't know what's going on. Well, this goes back to strategy and positioning. You better know what's going on because first off, you're a professional has a due care responsibility. I, the last thing I want to hear from my surgeon being wheeled into OR is, oh, wow, look at that. I've never seen that before. If you've never seen a project before, you have a professional duty not to do it because the first, the first rule is just like doctors do no harm. And so I, I kind of reject the, those one-off examples. They're baked into the price because it, th this isn't all you can eat buffet. And that freaks people out when you say that, but here's the difference. It's all you can eat of the food that you serve. You, you're not going to be doing flying lessons. You're not going to teach them how to cook. You know, you're doing very specific things. And if your firm can't do it or doesn't want to do it, then you refer to a specialist just like a doctor would, and you quarterback that relationship. So you've got to be very clear on the services that you don't provide. And again, that's not a pricing question. That's a strategy question. Like that. So let's talk about how you actually manage then the staff when you're managing them to deliver those, um, what I, and I like to call it products instead of service, because I, I don't like the idea of rendering services. To me, that is, Mm, that's that's not an offering, right? A service is your is is more time related. It's 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 more um, transactional. Whereas a, a you know a product, you can say, well, look, here's the product. Here's what we're delivering. You don't go into Apple and ask them, well, you know, I'm going to pay you based on how much time it took you to do to to build the phone. Right. right. I'm going right. to, I'm going to, I'm buying a product. I'm buying a complete product. Here's what the product does. So, um, and Apple of course is managing their staff on how efficiently and effectively they produce that product. So when you're talking about staff, we've been managing our staff for over a hundred years based on utilization, realization. Now we're not, now we're, and we don't, we, now we're not even recording time. How are you managing their um, their output. Right. And I think we do this right now, even if we are doing timesheets. I mean, if you think about it, when I ask people, do you know your A people, your stars versus say your duds? I hate to classify people that binary, but you know what I mean? Sure. If you were going to ABC your, your, your team, do you know who the A's are and the B's and the C's without looking at any data? Of course you do. You live with these people for crying out loud. You know what their customer service ethic is. You know what their passion is. You know what their professionalism is. You know what their ability to learn and change and, and mentor people uh, below them or even, even uh, you know, near them. Um, we know these things because those are all successful characteristics of a CPA, not filling out a timesheet. We, we put on the timesheet what we think the boss wants to see, not what actually happens. So first off, timesheets are a pack of lies. But the other thing is there's no predictive quality to them. Somebody can look great on a timesheet and be a complete hack. And if you look at why we hire people and why we fire them, it's because they're unprofessional. They don't have a good customer service ethic. They're toxic. They're, they're jerks. Whatever it might be has nothing to do with the timesheet. So you already know who your good people are. 
stop thinking you need more measurements. We have this fetishization with measurements and accounting, and we have the fetish with actual to, you know, uh, projected. And none of that's necessary when you're dealing with people, because these are smart knowledge workers. If you give them autonomy, if you give them purpose, they're going to, they're going to astound you. And I think we stifle our people and hence our talent crisis. I love it. I love it. So if you could, uh, Ron, um, could you give us two or three, what are the first two or three steps? If you're talking about, you want to go move away from hourly, you want to move towards a uh, subscription. What are two or three steps, uh, specific steps that you would take as a, um, as a professional services firm? Yeah. And I, by the way, I do think you can move from hourly and bounce right over value pricing and move right to subscription. We get that I a lot. There, I 100% there, agree. There's no reason to go through value pricing because again, these are different business models and changing a business model is always difficult, right? It's hard enough to change a business model without having to learn a new one and then change it in another year. So you can leapfrog. Um, you have to understand the subscription model. So there's some great books out there. One is by Teen Zoe. He's the founder of Zora, which is the subscription software platform. And that's a fantastic book. We've interviewed him on our show. So you can listen to that. There's some other books in the space by incredibly brilliant people by uh, John Warlow, who uh, most people know him from Built to Sell, but he also wrote a book called The Automatic Customer. Uh, there's one by Robbie Kelman Baxter, another expert in subscription. And there's one by Ann Janzer called Subscription Marketing. These four authors are the leaders in the space. And we've interviewed all four of them on our show. So you can find that at the soul of enterprise.com. And then also I've written a book on this called Time's Up. And my take is a little bit different because I'm pointing to the concierge and direct primary care doctors. These docs have been around since 1996, Tom. We have a lot of empirical evidence. I dig it. I did a deep dive on these doctors. I went really, really deep into the mechanics and economics of their practices and what all their fears were when they made the conversion. And it just gave me, this is, this has already been proven. So it's not like this is anything new. I just think we're catching up finally and putting the relationship first, because I think our profession pays lip service to the relationship. We say we want to be your trusted advisor, your partner, but then we have 2000 customers and during tax season, nobody can get a hold of their CPA because we're all holed up cranking out returns. And that's not why we joined this profession. So, so Ron, I hear, um, you know, first thing we need to really get more knowledge information on the subscription model. Um, so that's, I totally agree. First thing we need to do, what are one or two other things that you think a, a CPA or other professional needs to do? Then I would talk to some of your best customers and ask them what they, what they would think of this model at a higher price. The firms that we're watching do this. I just watched one firm that moved as of like March. Uh, he's moved over his firm as of July 1st to subscription-based. And he did it very methodically. He planned it very, very well. Uh, and his customers absolutely loved it. Uh, and of course, all new customers will be on this model. But I would still argue that you need to create a new firm. And you probably need to reevaluate your strategy and positioning. Anytime we watch a business model change, whether it's hourly to value pricing or value pricing to subscription, where we watch firms 
say, well, look, we're not going to, we're no longer going to do tax or we're no longer going to do this service or that service. They jettison some things. And I think we should be doing this anyway. You should always ask yourself, if we weren't in this industry today, would we enter it today? And if the question to that is no, well, then get rid of it. I mean, the human body has a discharge, you know, component to it, but corporations and firms don't seem to. We seem to get stuffed up with things that are no longer relevant or they're yesterday's opportunities and they hold us back from tomorrow's possibilities. I, I love it. Um, Ron Baker, uh, Time's Up is the book. Uh, if we want more information um, about uh, you and what you're up to, where would we where would we go? Time's Up Club, which is a community we're launching for this very purpose of helping firms make this transition. So I'm going after that two and a half percent of innovators, Tom, that are going to glom onto this idea and be the be the pioneers who take the arrows, make this transition, and then leave behind maps for the curious. So that's timesupclub.com. They can certainly find a lot more information on the subscription model at thesoulofenterprise.com. We have a categories button on our homepage that it's got a pull-down menu, and one of them is the subscription model. If you click on there, you'll see every show we've ever done dealing with subscription. So the four authors, we've interviewed DPC doctors. We've interviewed Jody Grunden from Summit CPA, who's subscription-based with an $11 million firm, maybe 13 now, I'm not sure. Um, and lawyers who use this model, plus uh, what replaces timesheets, what replaces project management. We've done shows on all of this uh, regarding subscription. Awesome. Thank you, Ron Baker. Just remember that, you know, when we start thinking about the clients first and we really focus on what is the what is the outcome that they desire, then we can get to that subscription model and we'll always end up with better clients, better practice and a better life. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the WealthAbility for CPA show. Better clients, better practice, better life. To learn more, go to WealthAbility.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.